We are looking at the life and message of Elijah, the prophet, and we now come to chapter 17, beginning to read in verse 7 through the end of the chapter. A prophet to Israel, the ten northern tribes during the reign of Ahab, that wicked Baal-worshipping king who was married to that wicked woman Jezebel. It was a day of apostasy, and Elijah calls God's people to faithfulness in a day of apostasy. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, we ask that the word of the Lord will have free course into our hearts and into our consciences, and that you would accomplish through the inspired word of God what only you can. No man can save a soul, no man can save a sinner. No man can grow another in grace, but you do choose to use the means of your word proclaimed. And we ask that we, your people, will grow in grace. You have promised that your word will not return unto you void, but will accomplish the purpose to which you send it. And we pray also that lost souls today would come to know Christ and trust in him as the only Redeemer and Savior. Hear our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning with verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up in the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, 
Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the Lord said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Elijah appeared before King Ahab, and you will recall that he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. After delivering God's word to idolatrous Ahab, the Lord sent him away to the brook Cherith and fed him by the ravens. The Lord controls nature, not Baal. God will protect his word and see to it that it comes to fruition. The Lord has more revelation yet to come through the mouth of his prophet Elijah. The Lord, who was in control of the brook to quench Elijah's thirst, was also in control when the brook dried up. The Lord used that brook to care for his prophet until it was in his plan to provide by some other means. The Lord does that for us as well. Sometimes we say, the Lord seemed to have cared for me, and now he doesn't seem to care for me. He no longer provides for my needs in the way in which he once did. But the Lord loves you, his child. And deprivation and abundance both come from his sovereign hand, from his fatherly hand. God now sends the prophet to Zarephath deep in pagan Baal-worshipping territory. And this intensifies this sense of judgment that has come upon Israel, that God would send his mouthpiece, his spokesman of his word, away from them into a foreign, indeed pagan land. And he would use a widow in that pagan land to care for his prophet. He did not use a widow of Israel. He used a widow of Zarephath. This widow was God's sovereign choice. God does not need Israel. God does not need anyone outside of himself. He is altogether independent in his being. It would be no problem for the Lord to provide water for the prophet, none whatsoever, but God has a different plan. The Lord in his providence wanted Elijah to go to a different place. And as he goes, we learn three things about the word of God. Remember, he's a prophet of God. He speaks God's word. And we're learning about the word of the Lord. We learn three things about the word of God from this text. The first thing that we learn is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. And we see this in relation to the widow and her need. The Lord Yahweh had commanded Elijah to go to Zarephath, where he also commanded a widow to provide for the needs of the prophet. The judgment on the church, that is to say, upon Israel, affected the entire world. How often it is the case that as goes the church, so goes the nation, or cultures that are impacted by the church. At this point, at this point... We have no reason to believe that this woman knows Jehovah personally, that she believes and trusts in the Lord. She shows respect to Elijah, and this is shown by the way she speaks of the Lord in the text, but she will come to know him because she is God's sovereign choice, and she will come to believe in Jehovah. 
The Lord would have his prophet fed by the poorest of the poor. She was gathering sticks in order to build a fire so that she can make cakes of her flour and water so that she and her son would have their last meal and then starve to death. And through her extremity, the Lord will show the sufficiency of his word of grace and his sovereignty over all things. God is calling this lady to himself through her poverty, not in spite of her poverty. That which we sometimes think is the greatest curse is the conduit of the greatest blessing. And here she is dying. She has a son, evidently small enough that we read later she places the child into Elijah's arms. She has a son, and they're dying. The prophet then asks her for water. Then as she's going to get the water, he says, oh yeah, by the way, bring me a cake made from that flour and water. Bring me something to eat too. Bring me some bread. You don't understand. This is all I have, Mr. Prophet. <laughs> I don't have anything else to give. This is, we're, we're planning our last meal from this little bit of meal and water that we have, and then we're going to die. The prophet says, no, you will do that, but first you supply my need. Is this selfish? No, it is not selfish. The Lord has a plan for this woman, and he has told the prophet what to do. The Lord will provide for his prophet through this woman, and he will provide for this woman through his prophet. And then we read in verses 13 and 14, Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. God sends his promise to provide for this woman and for her son. The prophet is calling for faith from this woman. Faith in his word, God's word. Faith in the promise of God. She will recognize eventually that the Lord's word is altogether sufficient for her, but she does not fully grasp that at the moment. She must come to know the Lord, and the Lord is working faith in her heart. She gave up what she could see. She gave up what she could touch. She gave up what she could taste. She gave up that which would provide for herself and her son. She gave it all up, believing the word of the prophet, because she is coming to know the Lord. In Hebrews 11, we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And she is beginning to believe the promise of God, even though she cannot see and she cannot understand. She is beginning to walk by faith and not by sight. Someone has written quite beautifully, It must have seemed to the widow that she was giving up so very much to honor the word of God. But she was really only giving up a tiny bit of meal and oil. It was all she had, but it was temporary and perishing. And by giving it up in obedience to God, she received that which was lasting. In like manner, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we give up ourselves totally so that we may receive that life which is eternal. Why did the Lord not simply open the heavens and give this woman prosperity? After all, the prophet of God is now in her home. Couldn't he have simply granted to her prosperity that, that was not found around her in magnificent ways? Yes, he could have done that. 
but the Lord is making poor in order to make rich. In her faith, she gave up everything. And when the Lord calls us to himself, he calls you and me to give up everything, to give our very lives into his hand. Her faith is truly amazing. She gives up everything she has, all that would sustain her life and the life of her son. She gives it up. Yes, her faith is truly amazing, but then remember, faith is the gift of God. And now she sees, or begins to see, the sufficiency of the word of the Lord to her in her need. For we come to verse 16, and God's word says, The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God's word is altogether sufficient for her need. And in an age of apostasy or in any time, God's word to us written is sufficient for us in our need. This is how God has spoken to us. This is his word to us. This is how he speaks to you and gives to you his sufficient word. And he says to you and to me, do not deviate from it. Know this word, love this word, learn this word, live according to this word. Believe that this word is altogether sufficient for your life and for your godliness and for you also to face life in an age of apostasy. How wonderfully the Lord provided, inexhaustibly for this woman. And therefore, it is a great shock when the next event takes place in this woman's life. And the second thing we see is this. God's word is life-giving. God's word is life-giving. We see this in relation to the woman and her son. The scene is set for us in verses 17 and 18. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And when she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You see, her hopes are altogether dashed. She believed that God said he would provide for her and her son. And indeed, I believe that is implied in the verses that precede, that he would provide for her as long as there was famine in the land of Israel, that he would provide for her and her son. But this woman at this point has true faith but small faith, and she's living on the basis of an erroneous theology. She seems to think that if God has given to me a promise, then there aren't going to be problems in life. That if God has given me his word of promise, then there aren't going to be things in my life that are incomprehensible to me. That if God has shown to me through his prophet his word and given to me his promise then I'm not going to have troubles, especially not troubles of this kind. How does such a view take hold? It takes hold by our coming up with our own idea of God rather than what he has revealed about himself in his own sovereign word, in which he has promised the people of God that we will have trouble and promised the people of God that we will have trial and promised that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God without tribulation. That is God's promise to us, but he also promises to be our God in the midst of those trials and in the midst of those hard providences that fall from his own fatherly hand into our lives. 
It seems indeed that the Lord had planned to preserve them and had promised to preserve them, but now the son dies. And this is a riddle to the woman. She can't understand it. And it's a riddle to Elijah. It's very obvious in his prayers that he also does not understand what the Lord is doing. And the woman is lost in the appearance of things. She's lost in the way that things seem. She's lost in the way that things appear. Often when God is keeping his word, it will appear to us as if he is not. Often when the Lord is being good to us, his people, it may appear to us as if he is not. Often when the Lord is showing his greatest love to us, it will appear to us because the providences are so hard and the struggle so deep. It will appear to us that he is not. But people of God, you can know this. The scriptures teach us that God demonstrated his own love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has proven his love to you in the cross, in his substitution of himself on the cross and bearing your sins and bearing your wrath so that whatever comes in life, you know that he loves you and he has proven it. The ways of the Lord sometimes seem to contradict God's promises, his goodness, and his love. And in verse 18, the woman says, Is the Lord remembering some sin against me? Why else would I endure such a test? Is it because of some sin that I did? No, no, that's not it at all. The Lord is showing the greatest love to this woman through this hardship. How many of the Lord's people here today can testify, I went through hardship. And I did not know what the Lord was doing. And I did not see his goodness. And I did not feel his love. I did not see what the Lord was up to. It was the greatest test. I was perplexed, but the greatest love was shown to me. And I came to understand that God was showing me himself. She must recognize the word of the Lord And be completely dependent upon the word of the Lord and not her circumstances. Do you see that? She must be dependent upon what God has said, whether she understands or not. She must rely upon what God has spoken, whether she sees how God is keeping his promise or not. Do you understand that? Do you? So Elijah knows the Lord is a promise-keeping God. And God has promised to sustain this woman and her son until the drought ended. And so the prophet takes the child from the mother and carries this lifeless body into the prophet's chamber and places his lifeless body on his own bed. And he prays fervently, having stretched himself out on the child. He does that three times. He put his warm, living body atop the boy's cold and lifeless body. As if he would put his very life into the child if he could. The child is dead. And there is living Elijah, the prophet of God, the word of the Lord, atop this lifeless child. Again, it was as if he would give his own life for the, for the boy. And you know, a prophet came who also was our priest, who did this very thing. He also 
gave his life for us. He also substituted himself for us and through his spirit breathes life into our lifeless frames. God's word of sovereign grace spreads over us and gives us life. And here we see the life-giving word. This is the word, the living word atop this lifeless child. And now Elijah's prayer. How to pray? How would you pray in such a circumstance as this? How would you begin to pray? Well, how he prays essentially is this. Lord, you made a promise, keep it. Lord, your own glory and honor are at stake. And so three times he stretches himself over the child in prayer, effectual, fervent prayer for this child. How strange and mysterious is this thing we call prayer? How powerful, how wonderful is prayer? You see, the Lord has ordained prayer in his sovereign decree as a part of his plan to fulfill his sovereign will. Who can understand how prayer relates to the sovereignty of God? But when you pray, you are entering into the flow of God's eternal counsel to save and sustain his people and to further his kingdom. He delights in the prayers of his people. As Charles Spurgeon somewhere said, the prayer of faith is a divine decree commencing its operation. I'll bet some of you didn't get that. You need to hear it again. The prayer of faith is a divine decree commencing its operation. It's what God has planned, purposed, predestined for his people beginning to be unfolded in time and space and history in the extension of the kingdom of God. That's what prayer is. An old divine said, cold prayers ask for a denial. This is no cold prayer that we see here. One of the old Dutch theologians says that Elijah's request, the bonds of death were snapped and the soul returned to the inanimate body of the dead child. The point that should draw our attention here is that prayer can only be powerful and effective if it is rooted in faith. If it is a prayer that subordinates itself completely to the word of God and the coming of the Lord's kingdom. Only by clinging tightly to the word of God and the coming of the kingdom can Elijah ask for the humanly impossible. Do you pray that way? Do we pray that way? Do we go through the word? Do we say, Lord, here is your promise for your kingdom, your promise for your people. And you get upon your knees and you plead with God upon the basis of the promise. Do you pray that way? Or are your prayers simply perfunctory? Do you pray this way? Somewhere John Owen, the Puritan, said, what an individual is on his knees before God is what he is. I find that to be a searching comment, do you? What I am on my knees is who I am. What you are on your knees is who you are. The answer? God raised the boy to life. First time in scripture this has taken place. We read in verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And the woman is now for sure a believer in the promise of God and in Jehovah, 
For we read in verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. But Elijah the prophet points beyond himself, people of God. He points to Jesus, who was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. Not simply resuscitated, but a true resurrection. Promised for his people as the resurrection and the life. Who says to you, his people, and concerning our loved ones in the grave who know Jesus, the promise is that he will lovingly care for your dust in the ground and will raise you up in the last day. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so the word of the Lord is sufficient in your life. The word of the Lord is life-giving in your life. But we've not yet seen the most important thing in the text, which leads us to the third thing we need to see. God's word knows no bounds. God's word knows no bounds. We see this in relation to the widow and her environment. Did you pay attention to that? Zarephath is near Sidon, which is part of pagan Phoenicia, which is the country from which wicked queen Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, comes. This is the very hotbed of Baal worship. Archaeologists have discovered a shrine there of the goddess Tanit, probably Astarte, the female counterpart to Baal. And some archaeologists believe that it was associated with child sacrifice. What place more satanic than this? What place more evil than this? What place more fallen into the apostasy of a sinful human race than this? The Lord is sovereign over the earth, people. God's word knows no bounds. God's word is not limited to Israel. God sends his word, his prophet, his spokesman, his mouthpiece to this pagan country, to this pagan woman. God's word is here extended to a Gentile woman and her son in the depths of Baal worship territory and in anticipation of the new covenant. God's word is effective wherever God sends it. God's word is powerful and Baal is impotent. It is the Lord who controls all things that Baal worshipers attribute to Baal. The Lord withholds the reins. The Lord extends the oil and the meal. The Lord brings the death to life. The word of the Lord is sovereign, not that of Baal. And the Lord will take his word wherever he wants it to be heard, right to that person that he wants to hear it, in order to save that sinner from his sin. God and his sovereignty will see to it. No one and nothing can stop him. The Lord is using his word in an unusual place, in an unusual way, in an unusual time. And God is at work through his word when and where and how he pleases and in ways that we cannot predict or see and in ways of which we can never dream. He's still doing that. And we catch a glimpse of the truth of God's incomprehensibility. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Whoever would have dreamt that the word of God would have left Israel and gone into Phoenicia. 
but we also see an indication of where the Lord is taking his kingdom, of what he will do after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost. For here we have a prelude to the promise that the gospel will save a multitude from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth, including Phoenicia, that no man can number. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has given us the promise that there is a people in every tongue, tribe, kindred, nation upon the earth that will one day rejoice before the throne of the Lamb? Do you believe that? Do you take it to God in prayer? Do you see the unfolding of his decree as you pray and God works in lives in Iran and in Israel and in Lakeland? Do you believe it? Now, what's the certainty that that will happen, I ask you? Well, you say God has said it. Yes, I want to be more specific. What has God said? What's the certainty that he will do that? My friend, it is electing grace. Now, turn back to that passage in Luke chapter 4. It was read this morning by Pastor McDonald. And look at verses 25 and 26. Now, Jesus has two purposes inciting these incidents from Elijah and Elisha. One is simply to say the prophet has uh, no welcome in his own country. But he's also preaching election. Look at it. You can't miss it. God will extend his truth to others who are outside of Israel. He says in Luke 4.25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. That's our text this morning in 1 Kings. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, They desired to kill Jesus because he was actually saying that salvation would go across the borders of Israel into the pagan nations. This woman, this Sidonian, this Phoenician woman is not the host to the prophet, is not the host to the word of the Lord because she's worthy or because she's good or because she's deserving. She does not learn to trust the Lord because she was better than the widows in Israel who are also starving or other widows in Phoenicia who also are starving with their children. The Lord can set Israel aside and bring in the Gentiles and God's choice of this woman was sovereign. He has chosen the people to bring to himself and he will do it and it is no small number. Even if they are enslaved to the false worship of Baal, He will bring his word to them and will redeem them. Paul addresses new believers in Ephesians chapter 1. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame in love having predestined us to be adopted as his children in Christ Jesus. And as he addresses those to whom he writes in Ephesians He is addressing Christians saved in a pagan city, just as this woman is saved in a pagan city. Charles Spurgeon said this in his autobiography. Listen to it. It says, when I was coming... 
to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths into my soul, and he means the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. When they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron, and I recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. I found that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Now men hate this doctrine. God choosing this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, Not widows in Israel, not other widows in Phoenicia. This woman to be the recipient of his word. Men hate this doctrine. But when we are called by grace, we love it. Because, my friend, I can tell you there was nothing in me that would move God to save me. I was undeserving, ill-deserving, and this woman was chosen from the darkness of pagan worship When she was undeserving, her condition was miserable, there was nothing to commend her to God, that was me. I had nothing to commend me to God. I was a lost member of the lost human race. I was powerless to save myself. I had no merits of which I could boast. I was just as lost in my sin and in my idolatry as this woman was lost in the darkness and idolatry of Baal worship. When God came and saved me from my sin. And the word of the Lord comes to you this morning. Look to the cross, I say. Look to the cross, miserable sinner. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus, the only Savior. And you say, I cannot. Well, neither could this woman. But God gave her life. Just as the Lord sent the prophet to her, he sends his word this morning, and in pure sovereignty, he saves the sinner and continues to save his people. How many times have I told you some of those wonderful examples that come from the life of Charles Spurgeon of unusual conversions? Remember the young man that was uh, away from home, and when he left, his father gave him a Bible, put the Bible in his trunk, When he went off to live on his own, he so disdained the word of God that he was shaving one day and decided he needed some paper so that he could wipe his razor, so he took out the Bible. Every day he would tear a page out of his father's Bible. So did he disdain the word of God and his father's God. Every day he would wipe his razor on that piece of paper, tearing out page after page after page until one day... One day, as he was wiping his razor, his eye caught a glimpse of a scripture verse. God in his sovereignty had intended it, and God in his sovereignty saved his soul. Remember that man in Australia? Here he is out in the Australian bush, way out in the middle of nowhere, nobody around. No media, no newspapers, nothing. And then all of a sudden, there blows across the bush a newspaper right to the edge of his feet. He picks it up. There's a sermon of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He reads it and he's saved. 
This isn't chance, my friend. This is, this is what I'm telling you from this text. God's word knows no bounds. He will send that missionary. He will send that newspaper. He will send that clip. God will save his people. So we see God's work of electing grace extending beyond the reach of Israel's borders. God will save his elect. Indeed, this woman, this Gentile, this Baal worshiper comes to know the Lord. And what a rebuke to Israel who has known such great privileges yet has set aside God's word and embraces foreign gods. And this truth of sovereign election. This is our great encouragement. This truth of sovereign election is my encouragement and Jeff's as we preach. For only God can raise the dead. It is our encouragement in missions. It is our encouragement in evangelism. It is our encouragement in Christian witness. It is our great encouragement in Christian living. Oh, how dark was Israel! How dark was Phoenicia! How dark is our country and even segments of the professing church today. But why should the people of God despair? Does not our Lord raise the dead? Did not our Lord save this woman, this Syrophoenician woman? Do you not think that Elijah thought to himself, if the Lord can raise this boy, he can raise Israel to life again? Can the Lord not raise our nation to life if in his sovereignty he chooses? Can the Lord not revive his church today? Should we not lay ourselves over the deadness of our nation and over the deadness of the church in particular and seek God in prayer? I ask you, is God not sovereign? Has Christ not purchased his elect. Is there not a multitude that no man can number chosen and purchased at the infinite cost of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer? Cannot our God, cannot our God save, cannot our God redeem, cannot our God deliver, cannot our God raise the dead? God's people said, Amen.